All right. And we'll keep it at 30 minutes. Yeah, we'll, we'll get going. Um, just give me, like, tell me what you had for lunch today. Just so I get some audio levels here. I didn't have lunch today. <laughs> <laughs> Bourbon. <laughs> we just drank your lunch over there. Yeah. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And we're back with another episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. My name is Kenny, and we are on site today at Michter's Distillery in downtown Louisville. And this is actually my first time ever being here. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, it's my first time as well. We're in Lively Shively here Lively at Michter's. Uh, super excited to be here. Um, I've kind of grown to know Michter's over the past couple of years. I was introduced with the toasted uh, Michter's edition, and from there I've kind of dabbled in the few other brands. But I'm excited to talk to Andrea today. I think she's one of those bourbon legends that people may or may not know. And she's she just blew my mind with this uh bourbon tasting we just did with you know descriptions and verbiage and yeah uh, you she know. uh she's she's helping us get a little loose for the show right here <laughs> right, just, that's we right just, we just had five different pours of uh actually six six different rides so i can't even count anymore but no it's uh it was fantastic to kind of even go through them all and we'll, we'll we'll touch on each one of them maybe maybe not we'll, we'll kind of see as we go but so let's go ahead and we'll get it kicked off so today on the show we have andrea wilson andrea is the vice president and general manager of michter's distillery so andrea welcome to the show Thank you very much. I'm very excited <laughs> to do this. I've, I've never done a podcast before, so hey. this is really breaking out of my comfort zone. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's a lot easier. Like, there's no cameras on you. You could, like, I think I was talking to somebody the other day, and they're like, should I wear my my polo? And I was like, no, you can wear your boxers and underwear. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. nobody, nobody cares what you what okay, you look or smell like today. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Just exactly. To be clear. <laughs> well, we'll see how many more bottles we, we take down by the end of this up. <laughs> 
<laughs> so let's go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the first kind of question and kind of, you know, dive deep in that brain of yours and kind of talk us a little bit through about your first experience with, with bourbon or whiskey. Wow. <laughs> um, okay. So I think my um, first experience was being a little girl. So I used to spend a tremendous amount of time with my grandfather. Um, my grandfather was a, a known moonshiner, and um, but later in his career, he had a full upstanding life at American Standard, so very upstanding guy. But um, when I was young, uh, we would go fishing. And we always went to the pond on the Maker's Mark property, which I don't even know if you can access anymore, but it, it was a really cool place. And um, with that, we would always stop at the Maker's Mark distillery and we'd get to go up and we'd get to taste the mash. And it was very sweet and it was very fun. It was very intriguing. My grandfather would talk to all of his friends and it was just like this cool thing that we always did. And we did it with my grandfather, which... You know, my grandfather and I had a really special relationship. So that kind of created the intrigue in me. I didn't get to taste the whiskey at that time because, you know, we just didn't do that. Um, but it created enough intrigue in me to want to taste it. It wasn't actually at my grandfather's house that I tasted it. I tasted it at my grandpa's house, which um, was my um, my mother's father. And they had this beautiful bar in their basement with these cool doors, like you had to go behind the secret doors to get in the bar. And it was all, yeah, it was all very um, interesting place. And so you go behind the bar and I can remember he had old Fitzgerald, he had Heaven Hill. I mean, I could see the bar just like it, you know, it was yesterday and it was, it was so intriguing to me. And so I remember, you know, taking it out to try to take a little sneak because my, my parents on my mother's side, they were big into highballs. So they used to drink, you know, that was the classic drink. That's what everybody would have, you know, if people were coming over to their house. And, uh, so, um, I thought, well, I'm going to make one of these highballs because that I've seen them make these things a thousand times, so we're going to do that. So I did it, and I thought, yeah, that's okay. So I poured a little more, you know, 7-Up, I yeah. think, was what more it was, chaser. poured a little 7-Up in there. And, you know, to the point where I was like, oh, seems pretty good now. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was really probably my first experience, and I'm not going to tell you what age that was, but <laughs> that okay. was kind of my first experience of, oh, I see why you guys drink these now. They're pretty good. Right. We can <laughs> but, of leave. course, you know, I think a lot of that was uh, actually kind of the, the sweetness, you know, trying to get it to where I would like it. We can leave a little bit of that imagination, you know, yeah. to their listeners too. So, uh, also talk about what what kind of got you into the spirits industry, right? Like, what was that? I don't know what you would call it a culmination of some sorts that that made you want to start driving towards that. So, so that was really from my um, dad's father and my grandfather that I was really close to that we talked about the visits to Maker's Mark. Um, you know. The thing is, is when you build a relationship with a family member that shares so many intriguing stories with you, I mean, we would sit and he would tell us about, you know, run-ins with John Dillon and, you know, um, 
crazy people trying to, you know, steal from him and, you know, how he would have to sneak, you know, during certain times to get past certain, you know, places, you know, that he knew that they were watching for him and just all all of these little snippets and snags of things that were very intriguing to me as a, as a little one um about wow you know what what is this life of mystery and intrigue you know that he was living and while it was totally not legal <laughs> i i was very intrigued by it and i think that was really the seed for me to to want to learn more and then as i got older and had more adult conversations with my grandfather about those times in his life and we would make wine my grandfather you know used to make homemade wine and we'd make wine and i learned how to do that and it was just a continuation throughout my young life of spending time learning about spirits and the history you know, of prohibition and what happened and, you know, my grandfather using it as an opportunity to actually, you know, survive because they were very poor. And all of these different things led me to, you know, gosh, I I, I like spirits, you know, I, I'd like to really be somehow involved in this because there's such a rich history and heritage. I live in Kentucky. Uh, I'm very proud of Kentucky. I'm proud of it being Kentucky's signature spirit. Um, and I'm like, how, how do I get involved in that? So, you know, that's what ultimately I think was the impetus for me to kind of say, you know what, I'm going down this road and I'm going to figure out how to do this. So what what road, what kind of path did you take, right? So because you can you can learn from your grandpa, but you can't go and apply yourself to go. And I want to work at a distillery. I've been I've been doing underground moonshining for the past five years. I'm qualified, right? so <laughs> I promise I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, yep. so I guess what's what's that what's that next path in, in regards to education that you took? Yeah, so um, I went to school at the University of Louisville um, and pursued my chemical engineering degree. I graduated with a master of chemical engineering, um, and then. Really, I honestly believed that I was going to graduate and I was going to go right to work for a distillery. And um, sadly, <laughs> in some ways, that just wasn't the case because when I went out to try to find those jobs, those jobs are held by people that have been in the industry for a long time. So and they this, don't go anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> or they're I mean, family lineage kind of thing. Yeah. Too, right? I, I mean, it, it, it's very interesting to me. It was like this whole piece of the industry that. I had not recognized that people get into this industry, and if you have passion um, and you love what you do, you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. It is a career industry for sure. Um, and I, I, I think that was a bit of a throwback for me because I was like, well... Well, do you know when they're going to retire? Because I'd like to get that <laughs> yeah, job. Exactly. You know, so it just didn't work out for me. So I thought, well, another problem is, is I didn't have any experience. You know, great that I had these stories and these tales. I mean, my great uncles worked for Seagram and, you know, I had these stories to tell, but I was like, I don't, nobody cares about stories. They want to know what you can do. So I thought, okay, well, um, I'll go out and I'll get some manufacturing experience and maybe that'll help me in the meantime until a role opens up. So I went out and um, for, I don't know, a better part of 10 years, I actually worked in manufacturing. And um, I always tell people I did everything from cookies to oil because I was fortunate. I worked for a global consulting firm and was able to to do a lot of different things and learn how stuff was made. And uh, And so that was very helpful to me. 
And, um, and then Diageo rang one day and said, can you do some work for us? So I worked for them for a couple of years, um, actually at the Stitzel Weller Distillery. Um, and then uh, they hired me on full time to, to bring back essentially the Stitzel Weller um, facility. So that became a part of, at that time, the North American whiskey strategy for them. And then um, from there, I, I had many opportunities within Diageo. So to kind of grow and build my career and knowledge uh, in this industry. Well, it's awesome. So it seems like you've been doing that already, right? So you've been uh, growing that. You are the the first woman to be a chair on the KDA. So kind of kind of talk about what that means to you. Yeah, so I was uh, the first woman to chair the KDA in 2009. And uh, when I first, um, my first board meeting at the KDA was, I think, mm, 2004, 2005, something like that. And it was interesting because I walked in and it was a bit like all the heads in the room turned, all the heads in the room were male. And it was sort of like, who are you? And and in fact, those were the words. Who are you and what do you need? <laughs> and I said, okay. You know, on the inside, I have to be honest, I was probably extremely intimidated, <laughs> you know, I because, I, I mean, there were icons in the right. industry sitting in that room. And um, I thought, okay, girl, you need to suck it up and put your big boots on because, you know, you're, you're going to have to be in with these guys. So... I came in and I sat down and I think, you know, the the point for me was, you know, I, I need to build credibility with these gentlemen. I need to help um, be a part of something bigger than me. And I don't need to let the past dictate the future. And, and let's just go. And so I learned, I built relationships, I um, you know, did everything that I could to absorb as much information as I could and and learn from the people who'd been in the roles before me. And so when it came 2009 and the opportunity for me to chair was presented, um, it, it was like, you know, it was, a, um, it was a very powerful thing for me, but I didn't take it lightly. I mean, I wanted the opportunity um, to think strategically for the organization and collaborate with um, my industry colleagues at the time. Um, to really build something that was a roadmap for the next five years. And that ended up being the core of my chairmanship was the focus on doing the first um, bourbon strategy for the Kentucky Distillers Association in 2009. And then when we completed it, the first five-year strategy in 2014, it was interesting because I think we completed 98% of what we had laid out for five years. So, you know, it wasn't just me. We were all very successful, but it, it was a, a definite point in my career where I felt not only like the opportunity presented itself to to really have an impact, but that I was, you know, there was a shared recognition of all of us as colleagues to say, we need to take the bourbon industry forward and how do we need to make that happen? And so that was a very exciting time for me. What were some of those missions or goals that you all set out and did come? Uh, there was a lot of them. Um, you know, one that really rings true for me um, was that at that time, um, 
you know, the bourbon industry is very hot right now. There's a lot of discussion. You know, certainly state government is very excited about it. It's a signature industry. It's been They're called ready to cash that. in on us. Yeah, you know, all, all of this excitement. But at that time, that that wasn't the case so much. Um, you know, there there was um a definite need for knowledge and education just about the industry itself. I mean, it's a $3 billion industry for the state of Kentucky. Um, it employs, you know, close to 16,000 people in the state. Um, it, and it's a very powerful industry um, in terms of, you know, delivering um, great quality products to people all over the world. So the touch is massive. And, uh, but I don't think that really resonated with, um, you know, both just the common consumer in the state of Kentucky, um, our, you know, state government, um, you know, I think people who were living it, we knew it, but there, there just wasn't a common understanding. So that's an example of one of the big things was education, getting, you know, a collective understanding of our state government to help us empower, you know, empower this greater than us kind of attitude towards bourbon such that we could grow it um, in, a, in a stellar way. I mean, now we're seeing a million visitors to the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. You know, it's just, it's this amazing thing that's happened, but that doesn't happen without the work of a lot of people in this industry working for these individual companies out there every day, telling their story, telling their message, educating consumers. So it's a, um, you know, it's a very collaborative effort. Hence the reason why we're having you on the show today, mm -hmm. right? That's right. <laughs> so talk about what, how all that led to your current role here at Michter's. At Diageo, I, um, I got to do, you know, had the opportunity to do a lot of things while I was there. I, I did some planning, whiskey planning for a while. I um, oversaw some plants. I ended up being the director of North American Distillation and Maturing. Then I moved over to whiskey strategy and, um, you know, had a great opportunity to work on, um, you know, the, the future storyline for Bullet in terms of the new distillery that's going in in Shelbyville and all of these great, great opportunities presented themselves. And then um, sadly, as oftentimes happens in big corporate business, there was a corporate downsizing and they said, you know, we need you to finish um, this strategy. And then, um, you know, there, we have some other opportunities for you in Canada. And I said, that doesn't really work for me. I'm a, you know, I'm a bourbon girl. So, <laughs> right. and this is my home and and this is where I need to be. So we parted ways. It was very amicable. I, I have a, a, a huge debt of gratitude to Yagio. Um, but it was an opportunity in my life to say, okay, what's next? And really for me, uh, Joe Malioko and this family offered me a huge opportunity to just make great quality whiskey. A lot of times what you have, you know, it's just the way it is in big corporate world. Sometimes it's make the best whiskey at the lowest cost. Um, really, this family is focused on just, just can you make the best whiskey? Mm -hmm. You know, show us what to do to make the best whiskey. And so, um, there are a lot of things that we do here, such as entry at 103 proof. Um, that's our everyday entry proof. Toasting and charring barrels, 
custom chill filtration where every one of our products has a custom filtration protocol associated with it. Um, and then, uh, you know, heat cycling our whiskeys. These are all things that they're very expensive to do, but they really impart a wonderful, beautiful house family style of rich, flavorful, no burn in our whiskeys. So that story in and of itself, you know, you can imagine being a chemical engineer and, you know, there is a geeky side to me (laughs) where I like to get into all these little details and um, the attention to detail here is so extremely powerful that, um, you know, for me, it was, there was no doubt this was the place I needed to be at this point in my career to really do what I love to do. So, um, and, and be part of building a brand and leaving a new legacy. So mm-hmm. that's what um, kind of led me to Michter's and that's what I do now. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Kind of, you talked about those little things that you do, and, and I work in the tech industry. We call them nerd knobs. Right? <laughs> nerd knobs. Yeah. Okay. Like All right. You can, you Settle can, down you can over there. Nerd, <laughs> nerd alert. Yeah. <laughs> so give us, you know, we, we had a good opportunity for you to tell a little bit about uh, the history of Mictors. Kind of kind of give some of the listeners uh, an understanding of, you know, where did it start? I know it started in Pennsylvania, but but how did it then end up getting revived here in Kentucky? And then, uh, you know, where the name come from, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So um, the heritage of Mictors is really in Pennsylvania. Uh, it started there in 1753. Uh, there was a Swiss Mennonite farmer, John Schenk, um, who was making rye whiskey there. Um, and there's actually some Pennsylvania lore around General George Washington visiting that distillery, purchasing rye whiskey for his troops at Valley Forge. And, um, y- you know, that's that's all very interesting. And then um, that 
it changed hands. It went to Bombergers. It closed during Prohibition. Um, and then in the 50s, it was picked up by a gentleman, Lou Foreman, and he actually was credited with renaming the brand after his two boys, Michael and Peter. So there's a nice little family nuance there about, you know, naming a brand after your two boys. Um, and then they carried on. And in 1989, unfortunately and sadly, the family went bankrupt. So the distillery was abandoned. Um, the trademark was abandoned. Um, and it was really kind of sad. The Malioko family, Joe Malioko specifically, he had had the fortunate opportunity to um, distribute the brand as a young man in distribution in the 70s. One day he's like, well, what happened to Michter's? I can't get Michter's anymore. Where's it at? Um, found out that, you know, it it was all but gone. And um, so he convinced his brothers uh, and they collectively decided to acquire the trademark. So they did that in the 90s. And they started about a strategy. And it, it was really kind of a three-tiered strategy. The first part of that strategy was, well, you're going to bring a label back. So in order to bring a label back, you got to have some whiskey. At that time, I mean, the 90s, it certainly was not 2016 and the bourbon boom we're seeing today. So there's plenty of old whiskey sitting around in warehouses. And uh, so they were able to go out and purchase some mature whiskey and bring the label back. But of course, it's not good enough just to do that. You've got to be laying down product. So um, they they worked on their mash bill. They worked on their yeast. They came up with their recipe. Um and the objective was, you know, let's make a great American whiskey as good, if not better, than, you know, the old Michter's heritage in Pennsylvania. So that's what they did. That's what they set out to do. But they didn't have the assets uh, to to be able to do that at that time, nor did they have the money to put forward for the assets. So uh, they went to a contract producer and they said, here's our recipe. Can you make this for a fee? And they said, yes. And they were able to do that, um, of course, at that time as well. And for many years, there was capacity in the industry. Today, no capacity. Then, <laughs> <Right. laughs> capacity. They didn't so, know what they had back then. Yeah, they wish they yeah. Had it back. So um, they were able to, you know, contract uh, for many years and while they were, you know, making uh, plans for a future. And that all that contract production was here in Kentucky. And when they had to make the decision, um, you know, in the very beginning about where they were going to produce their whiskey and all of those things, it was to do it in Kentucky because there's no better place, right? I mean, this is where all the the talent is. This is where the support resources are, whether you need lawyers, finance people, you know, environmental people. Everybody here knows about whiskey. So where else would you go? Um, so they made the decision early on to come to Kentucky and, and seek those relationships in Kentucky, and then ultimately uh, their final sta- you know, uh, stage of their tra- strategy has become complete now where they've you know, built, we have a 67,000 square foot facility here in Shively, Kentucky, um, and it, it houses our processing, bottling, uh, distilling, and one warehouse on site. Uh, we have a 32-inch column still and copper pot uh, doubler here, um, which can also function as a thumper. Uh, we have over 11,000 pounds of copper in our distillery. So um, it's stunning. Um, it's it's That's beautiful. a burglar's dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, we do have an alarm system, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so 
but it's just this amazing place. And, um, you know, I, I really look at it sometimes. And, and when you walk through it, um, it, it's really very much like a, you know, it's a very state of the art distillery. And I, and I don't mean that by virtue of like, you know, we have thousands of control systems here mm-hmm. and we have one person working here pressing a button. That's not what I'm saying. We have, you know, a small staff here. It's a lean staff. We have 16 people that do everything from make the coffee to get the product out the door at the end of the day. Wow. Um, so it's an amazing team. Um, and we're all touching all aspects of this operation, which I think makes it very unique. Um, but it's, it, I think they call it a small batch staff. Is yes. What they call it. Yeah. <laughs> small batch staff. Yes. I like it. I like it. I, I, yeah. I'm going to start using that. It's, it's different. You know, it's not old. It doesn't have, you know, some of the, um, kind of the patina on it of being a really old facility, but it it's kind of like the new generation of distilling and its beauty and its cleanliness and the quality of what we're doing here is is just an amazing thing. So So there's not gonna be a lot of people that are becoming here to the distillery. You have something that's gonna be going on on in Whiskey Row coming to downtown Louisville. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we have a uh, we have the old Fort Nelson building uh, in downtown Louisville. And for some of your listeners maybe that are familiar with it, um, that project was supposed to be done in 2013. It uh, it, it has been on quite the journey. Um, the building <laughs> was... everybody's <laughs> problem on Whiskey Row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the building was in terrible structural disrepair. Um, Unfortunately, sadly, there was a couple of people seriously injured um, in the building. Um, We purchased the building with the intention to do a full preservation project. So this was not, I'm actually very proud of the family for the decisions that they made to preserve this building because a lot of times now what you're seeing is, you know, retain the facade, get rid of the back mm-hmm. and rebuild because that is a more cost-effective option in some cases. It's hard for people to believe, but it is. And um, they actually, they had to basically create a steel cage and place it down inside the building and then pin everything to it and redo the floors um, throughout the building. So. All of that work is now complete. Um, we are now, now you can jump on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can walk confidently yeah, yeah, on the yeah. floor. So uh, it it is fully primed now and ready for um, you know the, the interior details to to make a consumer experience. So our intention now is we're working through the details of doing an educational experience down there. Um, we actually were able to purchase uh, the old stills from Pennsylvania um, and the old Cypress fermenters. So we'll be putting that equipment in down there. Um, and, you know, we're looking forward to, to getting on with the construction down there and getting all of that done. So it's been a long journey, but uh, hopefully within the next few years, we'll see it come to fruition. That's awesome. That mm-hmm. sounds like it's going to be a, a great destination because we've been talking to a, a lot of people, including the Fraser Museum, all these people that are doing a lot of great things. And it's going to be a great tourist destination for uh, a lot of people. So one of the things that we we did before we started this recording here is we were sampling uh, pretty much everything you had to to run the gamut over here, right? So you have four core uh, products that you would see on the shelf as soon as you go in any liquor store. 
Tell people what those products are just real quick. Yeah. So we have uh, everything we do here is either small batch or single barrel. And our small batch for us is only 24 barrels in a batch. So it is very small. We're very disciplined. It takes a lot of attention to detail to produce it that small level. You should be consistent. 16 like your employees. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, um, but we produce a small batch bourbon. We produce a single barrel rye. We produce a um, sour mash whiskey. And we produce uh, an unblended American whiskey. And um, May 1st, we're actually releasing our Barrel Strength Rye, which is a spe- special limited edition release. Um, Paul Picault, who is a um, world-renowned whiskey writer, um, actually named it as one of the top 10 whiskeys in the world. So um, very exciting. So if you get the opportunity to purchase that, t- take the opportunity to taste it because it's fabulous. All right. So we'll take those four core ones. Choose your favorite child. Bourbon is my favorite child. Bourbon's your favorite Bourbon's child. my go-to. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's easy, my go-to. That, that was an easy one, wasn't it? Yeah. I, was, I was like <laughs> yeah, throwing thanks. a softball. <laughs> so then there's also some, I mean, these are all considered uh, by the standard definition, super premium bourbons. But you, mm-hmm. I don't know, but then you have some that are what we would call extremely premium bourbons, right? So you've mm-hmm. got your your 25-year rye, 20-year bourbon, 10-year rye, 10-year bourbon, uh, and then the celebration, right? So you yeah. got some that are that are crazy that are out there. And I know you've had the opportunity to sample each one of those. So now this is this might be a little bit tougher. So <laughs> now choose a favorite child out of those five. Uh, 20-year bourbon is my favorite. 20-year bourbon. I think, yeah. I think we could all probably yeah. agree. I, I had my first 20-year last year. We saw that one coming. Yeah, we saw that one coming. The thing that I love so much about the 20-year bourbon, and, and I've heard tell there's kind of the mystery guy, Willie Pratt, behind all of this, and he gets to decide when things are going to be released. But I've heard tell that uh, it looks like we may be releasing 20-year bourbon again this year. So so no guarantees, but it sounds like that's going to happen. So I'm excited about it. Good, because I hear it's delicious. I haven't had it, haven't had it yet, so I'm waiting for waiting for my bottle to finally hit a shelf <laughs> that I can snag, right? <laughs> um, as, it, as it oxidizes, it really changes. So that's mm-hmm. the real beauty of it to me is that you know, it's a very complex liquid. It has a brilliant finish on it. But then as it develops um, in your glass over time, it changes. And that's what makes it so special, I think. And you had another kind of thing you talked about during our, our tasting that a lot of a lot of stuff that you drink has reminiscent feelings to you, right? Mm-hmm. So at least with me, I don't know. I love just taking mm-hmm. in the moment. And I, I don't really think about what is what has happened in the past, but kind of talk about what, you know, kind of when you when you smell or you you uh, you nose a bourbon, you taste it kind of kind of how that that reacts and kind of changes your mentality towards it. Yeah, so I um I I'm very um I associate things. So always in my life when I've uh drank you know, bourbon, I associate it with celebrations and and sometimes sadness in my life. And so there are memories that, you know, certain flavors and certain smells evoke for me. And so, for example, when I drink the American whiskey, because there's this certain sweetness about it and it's easy to drink and there's a certain kind of fun about it that, you know, really is reminiscent for me of going to the Kentucky State Fair and, you know, having a big old um, 
you know, ice cream or cotton candy or, you know, any of those kinds of things. It's just, it, it's not about relation of taste or anything like that. It's about the experience itself. Those are joyful memories. And when I drink American whiskey, it makes me feel good. It's fun. It's, you know, it's uplifting. It's easy to drink. It's just a fun spirit. And, you know, sa- you know, same thing with bourbon. I mean, bourbon for me, when I smell it, it reminds me so much of like baking with my grandmother. Well, you know, certainly somebody, you know, um, would say, oh yeah, that's because of the, you know, the, the buttery character or the caramelly character. And, and sure, it's probably those things, but it's more about just those are happy times. And when I drink bourbon, I have these happy experiences, <laughs> you know, that I relate to that, that makes it, it, it's sort of a calming effect. It's a very enjoyable experience for me. So last question, what sort of legacy or impression do you think you want to leave on the industry? I think the legacy that that I really want to leave is, you know, making it better than it was when I came. Um, and, and that's not to say, um, you know, there was something wrong with it. It's just being a part of continuing to evolve the business, continuing to, you know, open a consumer experience as part of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, educating more consumers, um, you know, creating great new products to help them understand their palate, finding products that, you know, relate to every consumer. Um, That's really what I want to be involved in. And that's the legacy that I want to leave. Um, you know, being a part of building the Michter's brand um, and educating consumers, I guess. So what's next for Michter's then? What's what's on the horizon? <laughs> Can't tell you. <laughs> How come everybody says that? I <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, 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 let, I let a little note there about, you know, the potential for 20 this year. I think, um, you know, we've certainly had some discussions about the potential for another celebration. Um, I think that could be very exciting, you know, for us as a brand. I mean, celebration was something that was extremely special, especially for you know, like when you look at the old cognacs and the Scotch whiskeys and um, how they've used these beautiful blending techniques to create these really special releases that, um, you know, American whiskey didn't see anything like that before. So creating the celebration um, project uh, many years ago, that that was something really special for Willie and Joe to do together, um, to take 20-year whiskeys, 30-year whiskeys, bourbons, rise, and create this beautiful experience for a consumer um, at a very high level. That's something very rare. Um, it's not found um, too much in the American whiskey industry, if at all. And, um, and so I look forward to that opportunity happening again, because I'd love to be a part of that. So It'd be very exciting if we get to do it again. Well, that's awesome. So, Andrew, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. Yeah. It was, uh, like I said, we can put another checkbox off, another distillery off the list, right? Yeah, we're we're getting them. We I'm, we're running out of people. No, <laughs> no, there's so many people. It's it's such a cool industry. You know, like there's so many people that. Of course, there's the master distillers, but there's people like Andrea that make this industry run. You know, and not a lot of people know. So I'm glad we get to introduce people like this to our listeners. Yes, it was very fantastic. So again, thank you for being on the show today. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you can, please, please, please go support the show at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash bourbon pursuit. 
Yep. And if you have any uh, show suggestions, uh, feedback, criticism, we'll take it. Um, And uh, we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.